listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, leave a review. Do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 2, my conversation with mass violence survivor, Rachel Maurice. So, Rachel, why don't you just start out by introducing yourself? Yeah, hi. Well, thank you. I am Rachel Maurice, and um, I'm a mom now. I'm 37 years old, That all that fun stuff. But um, when I was 16, I was a survivor of a high school shooting in 2001, and I was a junior at that time. Can you tell me, Rachel, what was your, what is your first recollection of the media after that shooting at your high school? Oh, the very first recollection is, um, is a very vivid one. And here's an interesting part because it plays a whole role of it. But my first media interaction was I was actually escorted off the school. And um, the very first recollection I have was of a, of a photographer who was taking photos as we were being escorted out. Um, and the, it's a, it's a weird recollection, but it's, we were being escorted out towards that photographer. And so, um, you know, we were getting closer and closer to that photographer as they were taking more and more pictures. And so um, even as I make that statement now, it makes me remember the um, sound of the flash of them taking the picture. And, you know, and it was, um, so 2001, I mean, it was like a big camera. It had a big lens or whatnot. And um, yeah, it just brings back those kind of memories and just being brought in towards that photographer. Do you remember if you're comfortable sharing, Rachel, how that made you feel in that moment? Because you, you were just escaping what was, I assume to be one of the most terrifying times of your life. Mm -hmm. And then you see this camera lens pointing at you, you hear those clicks. Yeah. So it, um, can you, what was that question? What, do you, do you, if you're comfortable sharing, do you remember how that made you feel in that moment? Like you just left the school campus or you're leaving the school campus and you've got this camera pointed at you. Yeah. So actually at the time I, at, at that very moment, I had no, um, recollection or any thought of them at all. It was just something that I was, you know, doing, I was going and looking for my mom and that kind of stuff. And so it actually had no, um, in the very moments, it was just kind of a passing thought. They were like on the right side and I was just kind of like going, going and trying to, I was just this auto so focused and looking for my mom and like, what did they just say? Where am I going? Um, so it goes into that to remember that that happened. And then fast forward the years later that I went to um, actually start my healing journey. Uh, I remember thinking, oh, there was photos, there was pictures back then. There was more than just the audio, the picture, you know, videos, there was pictures. And so I got the courage enough to Google my incident and what those pictures, you know, because I just remembered, like I said, I was a 16 year old back then. And so I was just like, Oh, I wonder what pictures or whatever came of those pictures kind of thing. So it did. um, I did go down and find those photos. And I did find in particular 
the picture of my hands, you know, kind of running off the campus and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You're but your then, hands up in the air. Yeah. And then the other thing is um, immediately after it was, it did become one of the reels that would play. And so the incident of like my, you know, running off and that kind of being in the line and that kind of stuff. It was one of those things that was on the news media at that time. Um, you know, one of the video reels that was just one of the loops. Mm-hmm. And you, you, know, re- you remember that like from the immediate aftermath of the event? Oh, yes. I remember the video and all that being part of it. Okay. So let's break those two because that's two different times of your timeline. Um, do you, can you speak to the impact at the time of that image looping on, on the, in the news media and the immediate aftermath, or were you, were you really aware of it? Did it, did it have an impact on you at that time? I would say, no, it didn't have an impact at me on me personally, because you're in such a fog after something like that happens that you're just, you're not thinking about that impact. You know, you're 16, you're not thinking about the impact. What I can tell you in speaking with my mom and things like that is um, it did have more of an impact with her back then. And, um, you know, and part of our connection, connecting the dots later on and years later, one of the other, uh, I just thought of something as I was saying that, um, the immediate, Immediate, this was the immediate impact was that um, I lived right across the street from my school. And so the media kind of had blocked off um, the street, you know, and they kind of had the, the streets blocked off. And so every time I would go to school for the immediate aftermath of it, you know, it was kind of trying to go through this layer of um, all these journalists or, oh, the news is there today and they're there. And, it, and at that time, you know, they were there 24 seven, like a lot of these incidents occur, but, you know, back in 2001, it wasn't, it, it was just, it, it wasn't happening as often. And so um, they were there for, I felt longer period of time. So they were there for a very long time. They were there at our graduation you know, in those kind of significant events. What was that like for you trying to get to school? Because if I remember correctly, you guys went back to school very soon after. We did. We we did. We went back to school. So the media, so my shooting happened on Monday. The media was given full access to the school Tuesday and we were actually brought back to school Wednesday. Wow. So you living right across the street from the school, having this horde of media right outside of your house. What was that like trying to go back to the scene of where this happened, your school and where it should be a safe place really. And having to go through, you know, the journalists who are trying to get interviews with you every day. Yeah. To say it was hard would be an understatement, but um, one of the things I remember um, back then and even now that I always think about is like, wow, the media had a whole day of the school so that like Tuesday, they kind of had this day and it was told to us that they, you know, it was for the media. And I remember thinking, well, when's our day going to be like with no media, like Mm -hmm. great, they get this media, but when is our day as students and as a student body and as a family when do we get that time? Because um, back then at that time I was thinking, oh great, the media will get their time and then they'll kind of just go away. 
you know, not knowing the process back then, that's kind of how I thought, how I figured it would happen. And it wasn't. And so it became this barrier where, um, you know, as soon as you looked like a teenager, or like you were part of there, you know, you kind of had to just learn how to maybe disguise yourself. And for me, I kind of tried to do that to just kind of sneak in and kind of go in to the school um, because it was kind of one of those um, instant barriers that was just like, I don't want to look like a student. I don't want to look like I'm, um, for lack of a better term, a looky-loo trying to come to the memorial. And, you know, because it was a huge memorial too at that time. And so, you know, you just kind of want, you have this push-pull, like you want to get back to your day-to-day, but you don't know what your day-to-day is anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was, it was a, I would say the media presence prolonged the process because it felt like, and in my community at that time, we felt like once the media leaves, then we can kind of finally try to get back to our normal Mm. or our new normal. And so our community, you know, kind of rallied for us and rallied with us to try to get that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the community itself, um, once the 24-7 cycle kind of media did go away and then they just came back for the big things, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of yeah. quote unquote things, they would come back for the trial, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Trial, the anniversary, your graduation, exactly. like you said. Rachel, I didn't put this in the list of questions, but just listening to what you're saying now, if you're comfortable answering, I think it would be helpful for any journalist to, to understand this. Can you tell me why you weren't, wanting to talk to the media in that immediate aftermath, why it was that you, you wanted to avoid them or disguise yourself, why you didn't want to just stop and say, this is what I saw. This is what happened. Yeah, I can, I, it made me think of a term because, you know, I felt a gross, um, a gross connection where I was just, I had this moment of like, when I saw, okay, let me put it this way. When I saw other friends and students and things being interviewed I remember thinking oh they just want kind of the attention Mm. you know as a 16 year old that's kind of what I thought and I was just I wanted no attention I wanted Mm -hmm. nothing of the sort and so that was kind of my at 16 that was my connection to that of not wanting that you know I just wanted to avoid 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 let me just get over this get back to normal and kind of process losing my friend and, you know, kind of start that kind of whole piece. So that was my piece um, with that. And then, you know, I do want to get to talking to my mom and how the media was with her because her connection is so different. That was my next question, actually. Yes. Why why don't you bring us to that? Because that's something that you and I have sort of discussed in back and forth Mm -hmm. emails where you told me about the experience of your mother, let's start there where she's waiting for you. It was basically mm-hmm. kind of across the street in a parking lot where the parent yes. meetup location was. So just walk me through that story and what her experience was. Yeah. So she um, was exactly like you said, across the street in a grocery store parking lot. And one of her, um, she was kind of cordoned off, you know, caution tape, all that kind of stuff. So she was forced to stay in a certain area and um, had been there, don't know how long, several hours or whatever it was. And when she was in that spot, one of the comments she had um, made to me, not necessarily at that time, but, you know, 
we've talked about it and it's come up a lot was uh, she realized, you know, they were just there for the story. The media was just there for a story and she was just there looking for her daughter, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, she realized how in ingenuous the media was, or she was just like, get kind of get out of my way. Let me kind of find my daughter. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, how you worded it in one of your emails was that that's when she realized that the media is only interested in a story. Mm-hmm. And for me now, just at the beginning of this interview, you pointed out that you're a mother now. And I think you just recently had this conversation with your mom, right? About what it was like waiting in that. And I can only imagine, because I'm a mom too. You and I are the same uh, age. We're both moms. I can only imagine what that would have been like for you now, hearing your mom talk about waiting for you, you know, waiting for you to come to safety, making sure that you're okay and having journalists approaching her over and over again, how difficult that must have been. Yeah. I want to talk now because you, you mentioned, you know, how it was sort of a blur in the immediate aftermath in terms of you being on the front page of the newspaper, that photo and, and the, and it looping and everything. But what about years later, you mentioned when you, you decide to Google it years later, when you're at that point in your healing journey, (laughs) what was the impact then of seeing the images of you from all those years ago? Yeah. So the impact, um, it was, it kind of just, it made me ill and sick, um, for the gruesome photos. And so now I want to have, there's categories of the gruesome photos. And for me, the gruesome photos are me visually, you know, with my hands up, that kind of those of all of us, um, in tears, in fear, you know, and that like, just, you know, shock and awe those photos. Um, there was also photos, you know, the, the regular, and it's so unfortunate to have to say regular crime scene photos. Mm -hmm. There was those as well. And so once I got past, um, kind of those, I got to this place of finding the beautiful memorial Mm. pictures. And that's one of the things that the media was great at capturing is yeah, the shock and awe and everything in the medium aftermath, but to have for me, the beautiful memorial photos. Mm -hmm. And because the other picture that you and I haven't gotten a chance to talk too much about is there is a memorial photo of me uh, and one of my good friends in front of the memorial. Mm -hmm. And it, um, and then there's kind of a flagpole in front of it. And it's just us looking at it. And it's the back of me. And we're kind of leaning in and hugging each other. And so when I got to see that one, and that one has since, you know, it comes up, I think it was like made a Times article or something like that. But it's, it's often a very, you know, one now all these years later that actually comes up. Mm. So kind of, um, it has allowed me to kind of make some type of peace with it because I see, yeah, they caught me in the front you know, and that gruesome side, which lasted and, you know, had those kind of negative impacts, but then to have the flip side and having just the back. And that was a moment when I remember a journalist, when I went to that and um, they didn't ask, they just were silently kind of in the back. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, because it's kind of hard to kind of go to that place. And I remember not wanting to necessarily go to the um, you know, memorial because of that. Cause I'm like, great. Now I'm going to have to go buy all the media and go buy the pictures and want to have this moment. And so it's, 
in a strange way had brought this beautiful, you know, kind of push pull kind of connection. And so now I'm grateful that those photos, that that particular and the memorial photos exist. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that journalism that I don't, you know, it's not a practice of mine, but that I've learned is they do capture moments in time. And so for a journalist to know that they are going to have that lasting impact on a survivor, on a person or anything can be a beautiful thing. And if they can approach it in a way that is just, hey, I'm here to capture this moment in time. You never know what photos you're going to have that'll be there forever for a survivor. And so for me, um, that is one thing that all these, you know, 21 years later, I'm able to be thankful for that I have that. That, Rachel, um, I was getting really emotional listening to you there because as a journalist, I've been present for both situations in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, wherein as a journalist, you're just documenting, documenting, documenting. And then also in the days after where people are coming to place flowers. And I think about so many times that you know, like as journalists, we, we hang out at scenes waiting mm-hmm. for people to come place flowers so we can interview them, not just mm-hmm. to take pictures. But I think about it now and it's like the, the feeling of sort of hovering over and letting them have their moment, but then going and putting a microphone in their face. So to hear you talk about what a positive impact it has on you, because on the one hand, you're describing this gruesome photo and for me, that was very interesting, too, to hear you use the word gruesome, because I thought that, that you were about to describe one of those, as you say, typical crime scene mm-hmm. photos, and not a photo of you with your hands above your head. But then, so to hear the negative association you have to that photo, but then to hear the positive association that you have to a photo where a journalist was not bothering you, where a journalist just stayed back and let you have your moment. I think will be very impactful for any journalists listening because they can know the power of just staying away and staying yeah. back and taking a respectful photo. And like you said, you can't even see your face in that, but it kind of gets the job done. But I wonder like what the solution is, because I think one of the things you said in your survey was, you know, like journalists need to know that that photos are forever. And you just described the, the negative impact of the photo of you leaving the school. I, I apologize. I didn't put this question in, in the yeah. list of questions either. But if you're comfortable continue, continuing on this path, do you see a solution there? Like, because that photo of you, the first one that was so upsetting, that's there forever in Google, mm-hmm. right? Do you wish that it, it would just go away? Do you wish that it was never taken? Like, is there some way to make it better for you? Because as you say, journalists are there documenting a moment in time. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say um, there's. A, it's a push pull. They they are there. It's a part of it. And so I would just say um, one of the ways that you know you started with that phrase the um, what do you call it something journalism trauma informed journalism trauma informed yeah I wanted to ask you that yeah what what trauma informed yeah. journalism so, means to you. Okay, I don't know what it means to me, but one of the things that I know would be nice is just, um, 
at the 20th anniversary, when we had our uh, media there, someone, the, the journalists, are, the, they had asked and they said, is it okay if we're here? Are you okay with that? And just asking a question was kind of surreal. I'm like, well, of course it is. But then I was thinking, wow, how impactful. I mean, because we are, you know, my school is unfortunately a place that the media does go. They went there when Sandy Hook happened. They went there when all these other significant school shootings have happened. But to have a journalist ask at a 20th year anniversary, is it okay if we're here during your vigil? You know, that was just impactful and just asking a question or asking permission, Mm -hmm. you know, because for me, at least all these years later, brought that closure. Hey, time for a quick break. It's your host, Tamara Cherry. Regular listeners of the Trauma Beat podcast will notice me mentioning my research project. I surveyed or interviewed more than 100 trauma survivors from homicides to traffic fatalities, sexual violence to mass violence, and more than two dozen journalists as I explored the impact of the media on trauma survivors and the impact of trauma on members of the media. That research formed the basis of my book, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. Pick it up at your favorite bookstore, download it to your favorite e-reader, or listen to me narrate it through your favorite audiobook publisher. Okay, back to the podcast. One of the things I know I had mentioned to you was just having a, this would be more for maybe service providers, is they need to really work with the media, with survivors to kind of have maybe a media shield or someplace that's like a media-free zone or um, something like that. And that would be something that could work at the, you know, back end or whatever, working, you know, connections to have that where it's like, hey, if survivors want to go to the presence of a media, this is where they're going to be. But then there's going to be, there's certain sacred places. And I would say like the memorial sites, what ends up often being the memorial sites are kind of a sacred place. So you kind of have that push-pull balance and mixture of, you know, things there. Mm -hmm. You can get your stuff, but anybody that doesn't want to be in contact with the media still has these safe places. And I think one of the other places you pointed out um, in your survey was in uh, courthouses. Had you said that too, like a media free zone in in a place like court proceedings? Yeah. So, and again, I guess that just speaks to, because there are going to be people who don't want to have to deal with the media and you shouldn't be excluded from those places because you're trying to avoid journalists. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so that's a great piece of advice is for victim service providers. Is there anything else that you'd like to say for victim service providers in terms of how they can support trauma survivors who might be suddenly faced with media attention? Yeah, just kind of get work with the media head on, kind of have some type of a liaison, have someone, you know, informed that has a connection so that the family doesn't have to be the connection, that someone outside of the whole thing can be the connection. Um, Some of the other advice I have for the media is, you know, anytime there's a loss of life, that's a time and moment of reflection. And so you're going to have so many different emotions. Of course, we all know that. But just realizing, I think, the positive impact that the media could have, if they're just respectful in that way, would be great. Um, It's interesting to hear you say that there's going to be such a mix of emotions. And of course, we know that. 
because people actually, a lot of people don't understand that part of trauma, I don't think. And okay. it's something that like, in terms of the, the impact that trauma has on the brain, I don't think the average person understands how it can impact different, it can present differently in different people. Like some people might like lash out in anger. Some people might just be incredibly sad. Some people might be totally numb. Some people might be acting totally normal. And maybe members of the media or the public might be thinking, hmm, they're acting strange. They don't seem like they're impacted at all. So it's interesting because you that get it because you've lived it, right? Yeah, that made me think of something I don't want to forget to tell you. So uh, some of the impact as far as negative effects and negative people, I there actually is a photo too of um, our incident where there was um, billboards kind of, or I say billboards, but you know, like posters made where it mm -hmm. said media go home mm -hmm. because uh, there was just this group of onslaught of of, I remember, I think it was like students or something, but there was just pictures of, you know, cars and parents later on that just had that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, it was time for them. They wore out their welcome and it was time for them to leave. Interesting. Do you have and any idea how long after that was? That, that those I, don't, I don't remember because at least at my instant, they were there for several weeks. And then we, we, you know, in our case had a trial, you know, yep. we had graduation, yep. those kind of things. But, um, wearing out your welcome, it made me think of something is because that's something maybe that victim service providers and the media can figure out what a timeline should be. Mm -hmm. You know, figure out the timelines. Is it something that's going to have a trial? Is it something that's not going to have a trial? What does that need to look like? Because um, it's going to be different, unfortunately, for all these instances. And we know that, you know, there are going to be incidences. So just figuring that out, that would be a good question mm -hmm. to kind of figure out like a timeline and what that is. Because and it's maybe if you had a liaison, they could prepare you for that then. Like, guys, your graduation's coming up. The media is probably going to be here, but this is how we're going to handle it. And if you want to yeah. talk to the media, this is how you can do it. If you don't, we're going to have a safe zone for you so that yeah. you don't need to deal with it. Yeah, that would be great. Mm -hmm. What about something I meant to ask you a little bit earlier was, and it's something that comes up a lot with mass violence survivors. What, what's, how are you impacted by the media coverage of other incidents like yours, like other school shootings, um, other incidents where you maybe see some of the same sorts of images that you saw in the aftermath of yours? Yeah, I'm just as much impacted as those. In fact, I kind of know my own boundaries these years later. I know that if there's a school incident, you know, then I just won't even be involved with looking, I'll, I'll shut off media, I'll shut off Facebook, I'll shut off, I'll just kind of shut off everything because I know that for the first immediate aftermath, it's going to be a lot of chaos mm -hmm. and a lot of different things of, um, and it seems to be now it's sad because it seems to be now it's more and more gruesome photos and more audio wow. photos. And it's so hard for me. I remember one time actually, um, a couple years ago, there was another school shooting here uh, close to where I live. And I, uh, but bothers me, I can't think of the name right now, but it happened in California. And um, the audio for that, somehow there was audio brought and it just made me have a total panic attack in the middle of my house because I think my husband, you know, had been watching TV or whatnot. And um, it was just, I had never had that happen, you know, and this was you just mean like audio from the actual incident yeah, like cell phone that actually, or something, probably. Yeah, exactly. Something that had happened. And I just remember like scrambling in my house, like, oh my gosh, uh, sh 
you know, something's happening to just go and turn the TV off. Mm. And it puts you in a state of panic. Yeah. And you said that, like, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you're impacted by the media coverage just the same, like just the same as, as if it were your own. Yes. Event. It and brings you back. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a school shooting. It's, it's for me, um, harder when it is a school shooting, but even just other shootings, just a regular shooting, a regular kind of crime scene thing. I know for me, if, if there's a height in violence or another mass violence or anything, I know for me, for my own boundary, I can't have any media access. I usually, like I said, some of my kind of, um, uh, let's see, I call it like a, what do you have? Like a survival kit. Yes. I'll shut off my Facebook, I'll shut off my emails, I'll shut mm. off any text messages and those kind of things to just isolate. And then my family knows, and you know, my daughters and husband and stuff know, okay, we're not gonna be watching the news for a couple of days. Mm. Like I just can't have just when mom comes home, you know, let's not have the news on. Um, Cause it's just that sensitive of the thing. But I've learned, you know, it, I don't have to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm making it sound extreme now, but I don't necessarily have to do that. But having those open conversations with my family about what that needs to look like for me has been important. I don't think it sounds extreme at all, just because it's something that I've heard so often in the, in, in, particularly in the mass violence community of how easily it is to get triggered by similar incidents. But I also think it's very valuable what you pointed out that it doesn't even need to be another school shooting or mass Mm -hmm. violence. It can be anything like if you see those crime scene photos or people talking about a spike in violence, as you said. Um, I wonder though, like how long did it take for you? Because you're 37 now, you were 16 when your shooting happened. At what point did you realize I've got to protect myself from that stuff? Because you must've been living with it and being impacted negatively by this media attention for some time before you got to the maturity and the self-awareness level of this isn't good for me. Yeah. You know, actually, so I have a much younger sister that um, graduated from the same high school. So when my sister graduated, it was when my younger sister, I only have one sister, but when she graduated from that high school was when I realized that I need to set these boundaries for me. That's when it became like kind of full circle moment for me Mm. because she graduated in 2016. Oh, wow. Okay. 2001 to 2016, you know, is such a huge gap that for me, that was like kind of my first times of really allowing myself to kind of come back and like go to the school. That was when I really started the full kind of healing to go back to my school, to walk through the scene, Mm. to walk through where everything happened and that kind of stuff. And I think about like between 2001 and 2016, there were a lot of other mass violence yeah. incidents in the United States. So in that time frame, you were being exposed to those and not really realizing that you needed to protect yourself from it. So it was just Correct. grinding away at you really. Correct. Correct. Wow. I think that's such a valuable lesson because so many of the mass violence, and I mean, any survivor, no matter their age needs to be protected, but I think there is a special consideration when it comes to these school shootings and these kids that are so young and maybe don't recognize the impact that different Mm -hmm. things are having on them. So I think that's a very valuable point. And I thank you for it. Um, Is there anything, I I, I should ask you if there's any advice that you would offer, I guess, to other survivors of school shootings or mass violence who are 
who are, you know, suddenly faced with this media attention? Anything yeah. you wish that you knew? The biggest thing is you have a choice. As a survivor, it's your choice whether you want to be exposed to the media. You're going to be exposed to the media, but at what level do you want to be exposed? You have a choice to say no. Because um, that's such an impactful thing because I think sometimes when cameras are brought into your face, because I've had that happen too, going even to my memorial site, is you have a choice to ignore them. You know, you have that choice and the media needs to respect that, you know? And so that would be the biggest piece of advice and the thing I would share because <clears throat> when I would want to go back to my school, one of the first barriers is, okay, I know that for example, something just happened, media is going to be there. I know that it's, it's a big anniversary. It's a 20 year anniversary. There's going to be a lot of media there, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And so to prepare yourself to know that you have that choice, but also know that you have the choice and you have the resiliency to kind of get through and still go and be okay, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of the media involvement or not. Mm -hmm. You don't need to take that place out of your life. The media doesn't need to be a barrier for you. Correct. Correct. Okay. Is there anything else, Rachel, you, you'd like people to know just in general about the experience of being a mass violence survivor? Oh, where do I begin? <laughs> There's so many different things. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of sum it all up. Like I said, I kind of full circle with my incident, but um, it just, journalism is impactful. Everybody kind of has their thing. And I think just keeping that in mind to know that these pictures are going to be there because, you know, people like yourself are documenting it for history, for historical purposes, and just for the incident and hopefully lessons but um, my hope would be that there would be lessons to be learned. And I'm so grateful that, you know, it's being looked at and people are starting to realize what can I do what's, and what my role is. And I think for everybody to realize they all have a role as, as victims, we don't have a role. We're not given that choice, kind of just happens. And unfortunately, sadly, it can happen anywhere at any time. But um, you know, you don't have that role, but for other people coming in, advocates or the media and whatnot, you have that awareness of what you're, you know, coming into and the sensitivity. So that um, my, my biggest kind of hope and goal would be that there can be some kind of magical bridge or beautiful bridge where it's kind of all those things kind of cohesively working together because the other thing as survivors, and as you know, probably with dealing with us so often is we fluctuate. And one day we might say, hey, yes, I feel this negatively gruesome impact, but tomorrow, wait, where are you media? Like, I wanna talk to you now, or just the vice versa. And for that made me think of another thing for journalists too, to realize, wow, it, how frustrating it might be to kind of deal with a family that says, yes, we'll talk with you or no, we won't, you know, and um, kind of because we don't know. And I don't know as a survivor how I might be. I might agree to it one day and then the next thing, oh my gosh, all this stuff happens or some something else triggers it. And just knowing that, wow, it, it can fluctuate. Mm -hmm. So um, that is that is such a valuable point you raised, Rachel, because 
that goes back to understanding the impact that trauma has on people. Because I know myself as a journalist, and I know other journalists who have felt that, where they set up an interview, say they set up an interview with a homicide survivor, a mass violence mm-hmm. survivor for Thursday at noon, and then and that's their story for the day. And then Thursday comes around and the interview is canceled at the last minute. It can be frustrating. But having the insight that this is this is how this, you know, survivors can fluctuate day to day, it just creates so much more awareness and understanding. And that should also extend not just from the journalists, but to the newsroom managers, to their bosses who might be expecting something. Um, I just, it's so valuable that you raise that because so much, so much insight can come from understanding how trauma impacts people differently and differently from day to day. Yeah. And, you know, let me tell you something else that made me think of um, with dealing with uh, Brian and Randy's families was they said we kind of know, and we have like this own vetting process of like what media would be respectful or not. Mm -hmm. And the ones who have been most successful 21 years out with obtaining and getting all these quote unquote great interviews with either the family members or the moms or things like that have been the ones and were the ones that were very respectful early Mm -hmm. on and kind of obtaining those boundaries. They weren't the ones that were just flash in your face, whatever. They were the ones that are you know, consistently there. Um, and we kind of know, you know, and we kind of ask, Hey, this person's asking for an interview versus this one. And so when we're kind of battling with who are we going to talk to, we've kind of the longevity of that kind of thing and, um, took place. The other thing is the local media for whatever, um, that would be most important for the local journalists. If it's something that's like maybe in your jurisdiction, to know that, wow, your news outlet or your media outlet will be there for the long haul because it's not the national necessarily that's going to be there. They're the ones that are going to be there quickly and leave. But the local ones for the local media journalists to establish a very respectful and um, kind of relationship with that, that will go a long way. Mm-hmm. And that has been what's happened in my community um, for the local media, because they have been there for the long haul, mm-hmm. you know, and they've been respectful and they've learned, you know, through the years, how to kind of navigate with us within those waters. Yeah. I think that for the longest time, journalism, when there's breaking news, they have focused too much in the immediate aftermath on being first and just getting the information mm-hmm. out first. And they, and by doing that, they lose perspective of the value of patience and waiting in order to get a better story, to have a better relationship with the, the victims and survivors, and, and to even get a more accurate story. Because in the immediate aftermath, there's so many, I, I don't know if this is the same with your shooting, mm-hmm. but so many rumors flying around and then corrections need to be made or maybe they're not made, but suddenly just the storyline sort of changes from day to day. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's such a valuable point, and I thank you for that one as well. Um, I've noticed, Rachel, that you're sort of you've sort of been glancing at some notes. Is there anything else in your notes or in your mind that you'd like to share today, Rachel? No. Yes, there is actually another um, thing I would like to share because it's some of the most um, memorable photos. One of the areas that I had as a survivor when I went later to try to obtain one of the pictures. I realized there was like a significant cost involved with obtaining one of the pictures. 
And I, I had no clue. I was just like, oh, this is a beautiful picture. I would love to have this for, you know, Randy's mom or whatever. And so one of the things that maybe photojournalists or whatever um, could do is to honor that. And if you have a beautiful picture, give that to the family. That's such a gift that you can have to the family or to that particular incident, to that memorial, to just be able to give that without, you know, quote unquote, the cost Mm -hmm. involved in it. Um, That would be a beautiful kind of thing and something that the media could have. Like I said, my whole goal would be for the media can have a positive impact and they've had, they, they have, I say they, but I mean, they have such a negative impact when these things happen that it would be great for the media to learn that they can have an an awesome positive impact. Mm -hmm. And so just different ways and things that you could do to try to help that to happen would be um, amazing. Yeah, that's awesome because I'm always telling journalists to, you know, think about what think about what um, the survivor you're interviewing can get out of it. And it's not always clear cut, but in your case, after the fact, you found this photo and that would have been something that could put a little bit of reciprocity into the storytelling process for you. Were you able to get that photo, Rachel? Um, No, I personally wasn't. I don't even actually know where it is. And the one, the one I'm particularly thinking of is that one, like I said, with me and my friend looking at it, I've taken screenshots of it, but I I don't even know now at this time who was the owner, Mm. you know, of that picture. So I have no idea. I haven't gotten like a nice, super nice copy of whatnot. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe somebody listening to this will, it'll ring a bell or something. And then who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Anyway, okay, Rachel, thank you so much. Um, Anything else you'd like to say before we end this? No, I just, I want to thank you, kind of anybody watching it or anybody kind of taking on that trauma-informed journalism. I love that, you know, statement. And I would think that that can have an impact. And so um, I just appreciate the opportunity to kind of be able to share a little bit about that. And of course, I always like to end these with my two friends who were lost, um, Randy Gordon and Brian Zucker and their families. They were 17 and um, 14 at the time that they were killed and murdered. And so I just thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel.